Welcome to the HRS Podcast, the show where we talk to experts about the things that can go wrong in the workplace and how to avoid them. This podcast is presented by ActDesk, the software that helps employers prevent harassment and spot talent inside their organizations. After the show, learn more at ActDesk.com. That's E-K-D-E-S-K dot com. But for now, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Our topic today is HR issues and M&A diligence. For many companies, from large public firms to fledgling startups, being acquired is part of a long-term exit strategy. Or sometimes, M&A emerges as an unplanned opportunity to realize significant value for shareholders. In any case, before a deal can close, every M&A transaction will involve a buyer looking thoroughly under the hood for potential issues. This is called the due diligence process. Traditionally, major areas of concern have included financial results, customer contracts, major litigation, and even specific issues like environmental liability. But in the last year, as the Me Too movement continues to raise awareness of workplace harassment, employment issues have also gained attention during the due diligence process. Joining us today to discuss how employment issues, including Me Too, are affecting M&A deals is Greg Bedrosian. Greg is a co-founder and CEO of investment bank Drake Star Partners. Greg's investment banking career has spent over 25 years of advising leading technology, media, and telecom companies on mergers and acquisitions and private equity transactions. Throughout his career, Greg has lived and worked across the U.S., Europe, and emerging markets, so he brings expertise in cross-border as well as domestic M&A. Greg, welcome to the HRS Podcast. Thank you. It's great, uh, great to be a part of it. Before we get into how employment issues are affecting the M&A process today, I wondered if you could give our listeners just a really high-level overview of what is the due diligence process, what are buyers looking for, and how can that affect whether a deal gets done and at what price? And, and maybe part of that is what role do escrows play? What are escrows, first of all? And maybe whether this varies depending on whether it's a public company, a publicly traded company that's being sold, or whether it's a, a private company? Sure. Great, great set of questions. So um, but, but by way of background, as a, as a co-founder and the CEO of, of Drake Star Partners, our firm focuses on advising companies on mergers and acquisitions, predominantly in the technology, media, and telecom sectors. Although my career before that is, has included a broader set of sectors. Most of my 25 plus year career has been involved in, in, uh, in many of those fast growing sectors. And I can draw from some of those experiences. So typically when a company enters a due diligence process and, and due diligence is just a fancy name for question and answer and seek and discovery of, of what's really going on at the business. Typically, there was there would have been an initial indication of interest to acquire the business, but then it would have been what's called subject to that due diligence. And that due diligence can involve investment banking advisors like our firm, um, legal advisors, accountants, and others, all really helping the the potential acquirer dig in and understand various parts of the, of the of the target company and that really is often financial information it's legal topics and a lot of it is hr and employment topics so to address your question around how that plays in and and how it impacts things along uh, along the lines of escrow and whatnot a couple of elements no, normally the, the due diligence phase will last anywhere between 30 and 60 days 
And at the end of that, a set of findings is discovered. And normally a buyer, because no, no company is perfect, normally a buyer has found a few sets of surprises or question marks along the way. And they may be in the financial review, they may be on the legal side, they may be on the HR or employment side. Typically, what the buyer and seller will do to bridge a gap is agree to what's called an escrow, which is putting away a modest percentage of the purchase price and holding that back to protect the buyer in case some uncertainties happen, usually over the first one or two years after an acquisition is done. Is that typically something that's going to vary between a public company or a private company? Yeah, good question. So the 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 escrow concept is more typically found in private company M&A. The reason being in, in a public company environment, there's by nature much more disclosure on the financial, legal, and business front. And oftentimes, mergers and acquisitions of public companies are done on what's called an as-is basis. So you're receiving the information and you're meant to uh, decide whether what price and what terms you'd like to complete the deal. On the private company side, which in the M&A landscape across the U.S. and worldwide, the vast majority of M&A is of private companies, mm-hmm. of course, those are where the escrow will come into play. Um, and it's very common practice for buyer and seller to have an escrow in it for a private company merger. Thank you for that. I think that sets the table nicely on uh, the overall topic. Look, I wonder if we could zoom in a little bit on the HR aspect of, of that due diligence process. What issues in the HR world have typically been looked at or addressed in the due diligence process or maybe not looked at as much? And have you noticed any changes in focus area or, or what types of HR issues that buyers are looking for? And is it something that's being driven by certain companies or certain industries, or is it across the board any changes that you're seeing? Right. So there are, I would sort of characterize employment topics into two broad camps, and we can unpack the topic further because I know that's a core of of what we're going to discuss today. Um, On the one hand, employment topics come up around ensuring that great talent is kept and maintained and flourishes within within the the deal post-acquisition. The other end of the spectrum is to avoid liabilities that are tied to employment issues. And so, again, speaking especially within the tech, media, and telecom sectors, where our firm is quite active, as I had mentioned, there one tends to find more founder-centric or founding teams Um, more entrepreneurial environments where if a big corporate is actually looking to acquire them, part of it is for the business, but actually part of it is for for that team. And so in those situations, oftentimes there's diligence around employment agreements and ownership stakes of those key core founding members and quite a lot of thought that will go into um, at the acquirer and creating the right incentive package to help ensure that post-acquisition, when those more entrepreneurial founder types are part of a, a larger successful corporate, they're motivated, excited, and, and adding value to the combined business. Because again, that's often one of the core reasons why the transaction came to, to the fore. Um, the, the flip side, of course, is to look and ensure that employment and HR topics 
aren't creating liabilities known or unknown that may end up creating issues both legal, financial, and otherwise in the business. And it's that latter part that I think certainly in the context of the Me Too environment um, in the in Wall Street, it's sometimes called the Weinstein Clause in, in M&A transactions, where there'll be deeper focus on understanding and digging in and having the seller make certain representations and warranties around employment issues, particularly around social elements of uh, of the employment arena that will help protect prospective buyers. I think that second part about representations and warranties around the, the social element is is really it's interesting. It's a an area that seems to be shifting a little bit because traditionally materiality is the watchword for the due diligence process. And that's usually meant, have we found an issue that is financially or quantitatively material to the transaction? And in the case of maybe a Me Too issue or an employment discrimination issue, it may be that a claim is worth a few hundred thousand dollars if a judgment is obtained against the company, which is a lot of money, but in the context of a billion dollar or multi-hundred million dollar deal isn't necessarily material to that deal uh, financially. But the facts behind the claim might be pretty damaging, particularly if they involve an allegation against a founder or, or senior leadership, because that's a big source of value for particularly a private company acquisition. Have you seen any greater emphasis on qualitatively material due diligence issues around HR? How are companies or how are buyers assessing what is qualitatively material? Because that's a little bit of a harder cutoff versus a million dollars is what we consider material or $100,000 is what we don't consider material. Correct. It's a great question. And it's it's an evolving process that we're seeing as investment bankers in the merger and acquisition landscape. So what we found is that the, the discussion does, especially, again, I'll emphasize it currently, not exclusively, but currently more actively discussed in transactions within the entertainment, media, and tech sector. Again, because of some of the points you brought up, which were that they tend to be more founder-centric businesses. They also tend to be businesses where materiality, it's hard to identify. There, there have been some situations, I, I can't comment due to confidentiality on company names, but just to, to lay the context of some examples where, as, as you pointed out, a legal claim through an HR department might only theoretically be in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, but what ends up happening is the prospective buyer will then bring up, well, you know, that could have a knock-on effect. Well, that, that standalone claim may be at that stage, but there could be a knock-on effect reputationally. We saw what happened, and that's why it's often used in quotes as the Weinstein Clause. You know, a media company worth hundreds of millions of dollars literally evaporate on the back of various allegations that are, by the way, still still pending throughout the process. But in the meantime, the entertainment community and the financial investor community um, moved away from that business in such a way that it's not sustainable anymore, meaning the Weinstein Company. So there's, a, there's an element where qualitatively, if the allegations, and again, they could be allegations without a definitive outcome as of yet at the time of the pending acquisition, when you're in that situation, the buyer is always thinking through, you know, do I want this allegation on the front page of social media or traditional media that our company is affiliated with these issues through to would my clients, customers and, and other employees 
be concerned about working at a company if this was something that was going on. So in a way, something small but impact small financially, but in, but impactful in terms of the allegation, really has a disproportionate effect versus, as you pointed out, maybe a financial question in the audited accounts or something where it's clearer that one could limit the exposure to a set dollar amount. Where are buyers drawing the line then in terms of if allegations aren't immediately material, i.e., or financially material, i.e., they don't directly relate to a legal claim that might be at a material threshold, you know, it's not a million dollar claim, five million dollar claim, that sort of thing. How are they drawing the line right now in terms of what they want to know about? Because are they dividing it out by we just want to know about allegations against senior people or we want to know about all allegations, we want a full airing, or is there sort of a mixed approach to that? Well, certainly that's on a case-by-case basis, but oftentimes the disproportionate focus is on the senior talent and them personally, which we've seen, repping or and warranting about no bad behavior, no allegations will emerge, etc., which is quite a strong stance to take by a prospective buyer. And I think in the absence of the Me Too movement and in the absence of what literally happened to the Weinstein Company and the coining of the phrase, the Weinstein Clause, um, some of those types of questions historically, and I've been doing this in investment banking for for several decades, historically would have been viewed as overreaching or more personal comments that may or may not be tied to business. Here in this case, we are seeing on a case-by-case basis, and I I want the the listeners to to understand this isn't the majority of the transactions, but it's it's a meaningful percentage, again, especially in some of these sectors where these reps and warranties are being requested. And the, the reasons are some of the points that you highlighted. Um, I think another interesting question is, how does one remedy or address that? Because in, in a way, these are very open-ended questions that once lawyers try to put those into transaction documents, things can get complicated. And and we can certainly later in the podcast share some ways of solving it that that we've seen, at least at our firm. I wonder whether we've got this new emphasis on or this new approach to diligence or these new issues that we're looking at in the diligence process. Are you seeing that having any after-the-fact real effect on deal structures or or terms that you've seen the outcome of, of that diligence process? The predominant way that in the transactions that we've been directly involved in and those that that I'm aware of in the market, the predominant way that there's been the impact has has actually been on, uh, going back to one of our earlier topics, the escrow topic. So typically, as an example, an escrow, if it was a $100 million M&A deal or a billion dollar M&A deal with a private company, it would often be plus or minus a 10% holdback in an escrow. So 10 million on a $100 million deal, and so it goes. Oftentimes what we're seeing is to solve the issue, buyers and sellers are agreeing to a slightly higher escrow. Maybe that's 15%. We've actually even seen in certain cases 20%. The reason why that's a palatable solve is in the scenario where the seller's representations are accurate and nothing happens after 12 or 18 or 24 months, however long that escrow lasts, the seller is still getting full value for 
the, the full purchase price for the company. It's just being held back to kind of wait and see and make sure. And so that to date has been the way that buyer and seller can sort of bridge that. What it does mean is, of course, the, the shareholders of the selling entity are getting a little bit less of the deal value up front, and they're having to wait a little bit longer to get the full value. But that tends to be the compromise that we're seeing in some of these transactions of late. I don't know if you've seen this, but in a way, it could be a little bit of a tell if management really balks at a, a higher escrow to account for these types of issues. It might be a little bit of a tell that they have some concerns. So I think more and more, it's entering the mainstream of the diligence discussion and hence the negotiating deal points in a similar way to review of financial audits and quality of earnings and requ- you know requesting that or pending pending customers pending revenue events pending contracts that per your point the the more the seller balks at some of those reps or warranties on the financial side the more nervous the buyer may get similarly on the social and employment and hr related topics the the more they balk um, you're right. It, it could potentially raise a red flag in the in the minds of the buyer, and that's why my sense is. And again, there's been a, a relatively few number of data points to date, but that's a growing num- data set. That sort of escrow increasing from maybe 10 to 15 or 20 percent of the holdback is moving into being perhaps in situations where that topic is relevant more and more the norm. And at least the seller in that scenario understands that they're still getting the vast majority of the proceeds at close. And there's a calculated, uh, reasonable perhaps, but calculated additional sum that's being held back to to protect against these possible scenarios. You'd alluded a, a few minutes ago to the different approaches that people are taking to the diligence process and kind of what the Weinstein clause, there's no necessarily one Weinstein clause. It's a variation in practices. But what, what are you seeing in terms of how buyers are trying to define the issue and, and what, what different maybe lawyers are advising them to, to do? Or, or I don't know if it's driven by, by the legal side or, or by the, the buyer itself. Right. Well, I think there's, it's partly on the, on the negotiating side and it's, and it's partly also how be, beyond the escrow structure, the problem you know, is solved financially. So I think, first of all, these Weinstein clause related topics are brought up earlier in the discussions. Secondly, the escrow element is put on the table usually earlier in the process. But thirdly, and and quite interestingly, there's an element of, in M&A, an element of insurance called rep and warranty insurance, for those of your listeners who may not be as familiar with that concept, it's basically insurance companies that, um, like one would insure a home or a car, they'll actually come in for a price, for a premium, and insure the outcome of the representations and warranties. So in my earlier example, um, let's say there's $10 million held back of a $100 million transaction, an insurance company could come in and say, I'll for the cost of 500000 or a million dollars, depending on how they evaluate the risk, you, Mr. Seller, will pay me that 
500,000 or a million, and I'll absorb any exposure up to that $10 million sum for what may happen with the representations and warranties. So in that example, rather than if it's a $100 million deal, in that example, rather than the sellers getting 90 million and waiting for the other 10 to get to 100, they're actually getting 99 million if they paid a million. Now they'll never get that premium back for the insurance, but they're getting 99 up front at close and they're, and they're willing to take that slight discount for certainty. What we haven't yet seen, and I think this is an opportunity both for companies as well as some technology platforms and others, what we haven't seen is enough of an infrastructure within the companies to record complaints, issues on a confidential basis in whatever format so that an insurance company can analyze some of that data and get comfortable to underwrite a rep and warranty policy. So for example, in, in financial diligence or legal diligence, the insurance company will send people in to review the documents in a similar way the buyer would and judge risk. The issue today is with Me Too related clauses and other elements across the employment spectrum um, that haven't been tracked or of a confidential nature and are harder to track, there's fewer data points for an insurer to evaluate. So one of the trends that we see, but it's only the very beginning, is a rise in monitoring, evaluating, and storing through technology platforms or otherwise some of these complaints, issues, topics around the Me Too related and, and other clauses and other elements so that insurers can better understand it, but also buyers can better understand it. And I think that really moves things from opacity, from one person's word against the other, to something that is easier to monitor. And to be clear, we're at the early stages of that being becoming commonplace within companies, certainly small companies that have more limited budgets in terms of buying technology platforms or subscribing to them. But that's an interesting trend that we see and predict really evolving to kind of address some of those needs between buyer and seller. That's interesting because in the diligence process, you have the financial data, which is inherently quantitative. Uh, you've got data about Correct. customers Correct. And, and the market and, and that sort of thing. But maybe this is something that is more opaque and it, it might be opaque to some degree because maybe even the company doesn't know what issues it has because it maybe hasn't been told by people that they have issues. And so there might be room for technology to address to some extent. In terms of going forward, you're talking about the early stages of this issue becoming more prominent in M&A transactions. Where do you see us headed in 2019? Do you see us getting to a point in the next few years where this is just a standard issue in every M&A deal that it's, it has to be part of the diligence process? Or is it going to be more of a case-by-case -case basis based on the type of company, the type of industry, the founding team, that sort of thing? It's a great question. And I, I mean, if, if I were to try to predict 2019 and maybe even into 2020, elements like this tend to sort of have an inflection point where early on, one will see it in a handful of transactions and a handful of investment banking advisors and, and M&A lawyers will be aware of it and bring it to the fore. And then it will start to hit an inflection point where it becomes more common than not. I, I, would, it, I would estimate right now that it's certainly the minority of transactions today where that's a core part of the due diligence. If I were to estimate 
just an estimate. I would say it's probably in 20 to 25% of transactions, probably a higher percentage within certain industries. Again, like the entertainment and the technology sectors, I think it's more front of mind and it's more than 20 to 25% of transactions. But if I were to expand that across all industries, that would be my estimate. I don't believe in 2019, possibly by 2020, there'll be that tipping point where the majority of transactions sort of have one one or core of those sort of elements, as, as you put it, more standard as part of the diligence process. But I see it coming, and that's quickly. In the M&A world, something that's that broadly adopted in, in a several-year period is actually rapid adoption. M&A has been around for a few hundred years, and so something that can become relevant and evident in the majority of deals, and as I'm suggesting it may be by, say, 2020, would be quite rapid adoption. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And there's an element with M&A agreements where there's sort of often a, a template that law firms will use and they'll adapt for every transaction. But sometimes when a standard clause gets in, it just it holds on pretty quickly. I, I remember in a past life when I was practicing M&A law, there is a, an asbestos disclosure clause that's in a lot of, a lot of agreements and it's fairly standard. But it, I was working on a transaction for a company that just had no, just the nature of this business was that there would be no asbestos involved in anything that they did, but we still had to to do that, do that diligence right. and, and make sure right. that, uh, that was, that was satisfied. Greg, if listeners want to learn more about you or Drake Star Partners, where can they go to find that information? Sure. We're most reachable and easiest um, via our website, which is www.drakestar.com, D-R-A-K-E-S-T-A-R.com. Would welcome outreach and uh, an inquiry. And um, it was a real pleasure having this conversation with you today. Okay, great. And I'll put a, a link to that on the show notes to the episode. Our guest today has been Greg Bajorzian. Greg, thank you for joining us. Thank you. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for joining us on another episode of the HRS Podcast. This episode is presented by ECDesk.com, the software that helps prevent workplace harassment and spot untapped talent. You can find show notes for today's episode at ECDesk.com slash podcast. That's E-K-D-E-S-K dot com slash podcast. If you liked what you heard today, please subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next episode, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings.